Welcome to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a Presbyterian USA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. That's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. While you're up, you might want to stretch because this sermon is the whole Bible, so it's going to be long. You know? And because of that, we are not doing a children's sermon, and the scripture is um, part of the sermon, obviously. Um, So if there are children who are in first grade or younger who want to go back to extended session, um, they can do so now or at any time. Um, It's great to be here. This is my last sermon for you guys as your co-pastor. I think in a year's time I can be invited back to preach at the discretion of the moderator of session, but I hear he is a hard critic, and there's a long line of clergy affiliates that are part of this church that I will have to compete with. So I thank you for the opportunity. I also want to plug next week, uh, our intern, Victoria Robinson, will be giving the word, and we will be having, um, yes, we will be having a baptism of Allison Arsenault's um, child, so we are glad Allison and Matt will bring in their be bringing their child here, and that will be my last baptism here. So um, thank you all for giving me these opportunities for 12 years. So it is our tradition um, at North Decatur on Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday in the lectionary year, to try and tell the whole Bible in half an hour or less. I think last year was 20 minutes, but we left out most of the women. David asked me if I could get it back down to 20 minutes, and I said, you know, we've kind of overlooked these stories for centuries, so no. (laughs) This year, when women's autonomy is once more controlled by the state, we are foregrounding women's stories by um, preaching from the lectionary year W. And so I wanted to summarize the Bible from the perspective of women. Um, And I want to thank my co-pastor and spouse, David, for letting me adapt his already great frame and summary for this endeavor, Um, and also to honor the great and recently late theologian Dolores Williams, who was my seminary advisor, and she passed on um, Friday. And she inspired the perspective from which I read these women's witnesses. Williams wrote, All women, regardless of race or class, have developed survival strategies that have helped them to arrive sane at their present social and cultural locations. She believed that by sharing survival stories, new strategies for survival and resistance are developed. And I should also admit that while I wrote or adapted most of this, I had an earworm from one of Taylor Swift's new songs titled Antihero. the Holy Spirit moves in mysterious ways. So let's tell some Bible stories. In the beginning, there was chaos. Tohu vabohu, a formless void, 
And the wind of God, uncontained, creative, hovered over it all. Then God spoke, and a voice said, let there be light. And? And God kept speaking and kept creating and ordering and separating this from that, giving each thing, everything, its perfect place in the creation. And it was all And when it was almost done, God made you. Then God said to everything, rest and delight. And there you were, child of the earth, in a garden surrounded by everything that you could ever need, food and sun and shelter and work and even another human companion. And you befriended living things of all kinds, and God was there with you, and all was well. And God said, All of this is entrusted to you for duty and delight, except that one tree over there. Don't touch it. But the longing to know and possess what can't be known or possessed got a hold of us, and human beings ate from the forbidden tree. And that was a breach of trust. And when trust is broken, it takes a long time to repair. From then on, love would be born out of pain, and desire would be dampened by power, and life would be work before pleasure. And God believed that living forever in such a state where evil and good were intertwined would be too much for Adam and Eve and their offspring. So God cast them out of the garden so that they might not also eat from the tree of life and be immortal. Was it out of scorn or mercy? For how then would they ever find rest again? And God gave us a garment of skin and a final benediction. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the one formed from dust turned to you and saw each of you in your new garments of skin and named you the mother of the living. And that was still just the beginning of the story. God's story, but our story too. However, God would always be the hero. That didn't stop the sons of Adam from trying hard to see it otherwise, trying to create a paradise of their own, trying to cheat death. But the daughters of Eve saw how it would often be, falling short of God's ideal. How often wisdom and heroism would be denied to all humans. How often we'd be cast in the role of anti-wisdom, For women in particular, we'd be typed the seducer, the sorceress, the schemer, or the scorned. No, we were never meant to be the heroes of the Bible. If we are lucky, we'd be cast in a supporting role. History would be written, and it would be long and disappointing. We didn't need a tree of knowledge to see that it would be exhausting to always be rooting for the anti-hero. And so women learned what it meant to survive and to pass on those survival skills to their children. And this is how we could sustain what precious life we were given and could give to others. Life outside the garden was hard. It is hard. It's hard for us to know how to live. A brother kills his own flesh and blood, and the blood cries out from the ground. And that question still hangs in the air from Decatur, to Danyesk, to Darfur, am I my brother's keeper? And when Abel died, Eve had another child, Seth, 
And Seth had many sons and daughters, and they lived for centuries. I mean, centuries. But they couldn't stop acting selfishly. They couldn't stop hurting each other. And God saw men using women in mass to multiply their own means and said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. And God limited the human lifespan to 120 years. For God was sorry for making mankind and humankind on earth, and it grieved God's heart. Until God made it rain, and it poured, and the waters rose, and they swallowed up every living thing except the ones that some call Imzara and others called Nehemiah cared for in a boat built by her husband, Noah. When the water dried, there was a bow in the sky and a promise from God, you are my people and I will take care of you. And she was glad to see her sons leave the confines of the boat with the women who had become like daughters to her on that boat. And her sons named the cities after their wives, Sedeb Flabub, Naeltamuk, and Adetanesis. And God did take care of us, even entering into the lives of individual people. God called to Sarah, go away from the place that you love to the place that I will show you. And she did, though she suffered many losses. She did keep her laughter, especially when God told her husband, Abraham, that all those stars are your children and your children's children. But such a prophecy was a gift and a burden. For when her body would not multiply, she forced the responsibility upon Hagar, her maid, and she accepted these children until she had her own. And then she turned on Hagar and Ishmael. But Hagar found God in the wilderness, and she and her son survived to tell the tale. And those children of Hagar and Sarah were quite a handful, and so they passed down the skills of survival to their daughters by marriage to the next generation of mothers to the living, understanding the mixed blessing of birthing mortals. There was Rebecca, a fan of wells and fresh water. Rebecca wished to heal the thirst and the trauma of Isaac, who grieved the recent death of his mother Sarah and never trusted his father, who had once held a knife over him and left his brother Ishmael to die. Rebecca did not protest when Isaac, fearing for his own life, tried to pass her off as his sister and stood by as she was harassed. But seeing Isaac could not live forever and wanting God's blessing to continue in the most capable hands, Rebecca helped her younger son Jacob secure the birthright, for she believed this was the key to all their survival. And there was Mahalath. Mahalath grew up towards Assyria with her father Ishmael and her 12 brothers, and they were all princes. And when she met Esau, who was heartbroken by the betrayal of his brother and his first two wives, she pledged her loyalty to him, healing not just a broken heart, but a broken family. And they presided over a large and prosperous family after all, but in another land, for they both knew what it was like not to be favored. And despite their persistence, the women of Genesis were treated with suspicion, and their stories were set against this backdrop, making it once again impossible to be a heroine in a story meant to exalt someone else. 
and their desperation and denigration could be deafening at times. Give me children or I will die, cried a barren Rachel, who would breathe her last breath as her second son, Benjamin, took his first. And no words come from Leah, at least none that are recorded, when her daughter Dinah was raped and forced to marry Shechem. And Leah appears silent again when her sons become murderers to avenge Dinah's honor. In the wake of these tragedies, Jacob, still favored, was renamed by God as Israel and blessed again with the rights to Abraham's land and the promise of fathering nations. And yet no stories were saved of the women who ensured the blessings of Abraham's offspring, just their names, which again is no small thing in another hero's story. Bilhal and Zilpah and Ada and Aholabamah and Bazamoth and Timnah. And when Jacob, now Israel, returned to Canaan, he and his family lived as refugees. And Joseph, the eldest son of Rachel, was hated and sold into slavery by his brothers. But still Joseph saved his people from famine in the end. Yet it is Azanoth who rescued Joseph from the scars of double alienation. For while serving the Pharaoh, Joseph found the love of his life, Azanoth. And she was visited by an angel of God on the eve of their engagement, and that converted her to Joseph's faith. And when they were betrothed, Joseph named her city of refuge. And what of Miriam, who also knew the pattern of outcasting? Miriam, the oldest sister, bore the grief of her mother, who had set her infant son in a basket to float down a river in hopes of escaping genocide. Until the day that younger brother became a leader and freed Miriam and her people from slavery in Egypt. And on the other side in freedom, Miriam danced in joy. But they were only free from the Egyptians not from fear or doubt or their sin or the harshness of life in the desert. And so God gave them water to drink and manna to scrape off the ground and eat. But they grumbled and they groused about how is much better in Egypt. And God called Moses up to Sinai and said, My people need clear instructions about how to live together. Here are ten simple rules. And Moses brought the commandments down but his family was worshiping a gold idol. And that was almost the end of the story again. But God came down from the mountain in a pillar of cloud and rebuked them. And Miriam's skin blanched, and she was cast out of the camp as a leper for seven days, reminding her who was not the heroine in the story. And Moses also kept, was kept out when they reached the promised land. But before he died, Moses gave a blessing to Israel, describing the God on Sinai as Yahweh and Asherah, a union of the divine masculine and feminine. But that was the last time such harmony would be sung. But God did not allow Moses' son, Joshua, God did allow Moses' son, Joshua, to cross the Jordan and enter the land of milk and honey, the land of hope, a land already occupied by people who were not happy to see God's people arrive. 
And so began a long and difficult process by which God's people had to figure out who they were in the midst of lots of other very different people. Rahab was one of those different people. A foreign woman of ill repute, she was working in Jericho when Joshua came to take the city. And she believed in the power of Joshua's God, so she hid spies for him, and his troops spared her family in return. And Rahab married into the tribe of Judah and bore a son, Boaz, and became part of the lineage of David and of Jesus. Over the years, God's people managed and survived. Foreign threats would rise and fall. God's people were never secure enough, though, with their life of worship and prayer and kindness and mutual aid. They were always afraid of the Philistines, of the Egyptians, or the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, or the Persians. Finally, they insisted that God give them a king. If only we had a king, we would not be afraid anymore, they said. But recognizing hero worship for what it was, God said, you don't want a king. You don't know what kings do with their power. You are better off without a king. But the people said, no, give us a king. And God said, okay, you asked for it. And the people got Saul, who was deposed, and David, the best of them all, a poet, a musician, and a slayer of giants, but also a liar and an adulterer. Dozens and dozens of kings would follow, and guess what? God was right. Kings abused people. They hoard the wealth. They abandon God's way. God's people then suffer. Just ask their wives, Micah and Abigail, and Ahinoam, sorry, Ahinoam, or Bathsheba, who will tell you that David usurps wives as often as he usurps other people's kingdoms. Or ask their daughters, like Tamar, who is raped and sent away because a king can only give permission for her daughter to marry. Or the many wives of Solomon who are blamed for divisions among the kingdom, for being outsiders. But even as their kingdoms are falling apart, Saul, David, and Joab seek the counsel of wise women, seers at Endor and Tekoa and Abel, and their counsel changes history. And many queens and queen mothers staked their power on Asherah, the divine feminine symbolized by a tree. And some believed Asherah to be the consort of Yahweh, the divine ruler. And there were at times women warriors and ambassadors, Deborah, Judith, and Esther, but their songs of victory were soon drowned out. And there were true female enemies too, like Jezebel, who ended up being eaten by dogs. And there were women peacemakers like Ruth and Naomi who sought to make family in foreign lands. And God raised up prophets. And prophets came from all walks of life. And God gave them insight and wisdom to speak truth to power. And they did. And they still do. And many times their power was proved by the women who visited them. The widows and the mothers seeking help for their sons the women who must try any means necessary to survive. For that is what it means to be a mother to the living. And Deborah, the only female judge and warrior, was also a prophet. And though her story records no children, she called herself a mother in Israel, for she saw her protection of her community as maternal. 
And the prophets preached, and they protested, and they made life miserable for the corrupt kings. And their names were Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, Elisha, and Micah, and Amos, and Hosea. And they said, damn the one who oppresses God's people. And they said, let justice roll down like waters. And they said, do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. But the kings couldn't hear. The armies and the nations around God's people circled tighter and tighter, and the holy city was taken. And the temple, the house of the Lord, was desecrated. And people wondered if God might have gone away too. Whose story was this anyway? Who would be their hero? But in that moment, Isaiah brought a message. Comfort my people. There's a highway in the desert, and every valley shall be raised, and every mountain made low. And the people returned to their city, and they rebuilt the walls, and they rebuilt the temple, and they tried to rebuild their faith, but they never quite found the right king to lead them. There ends our summary of the First Testament. If you want to check accuracy, um, is Bill Brown in the audience or, any, or Alice upstairs? We got some Old Testament professors. Then one day in a small village in the middle of nowhere, a teenage girl heard a voice. Mary, I have chosen you. And the voice said, you will have a baby. She was afraid, but she said, let it be. Because she never believed herself to be the hero of the story, but she understood that she could be more than mother to the living. That we, through our faith and our compassion, could be mothers to God. And she sang with the conviction of the old prophets, the men anointed by those women bent on survival. God has done great things for me. God has looked at me with favor. God pulls the mighty down from their throne, and God lifts up the lowly. And God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty. And the pregnant girl and her husband went to Bethlehem, to the city of David, and she gave birth to her baby in the animal stalls. But the family soon fled the country because the Roman king heard a rumor that a mighty ruler had been born, and he started murdering children. But Mary's child survived, and he grew up. And we don't know much except that his family worked with their hands and they lived among the poor. And one day a prophet named John stood in the Jordan River shouting at people, telling them, repent, turn to God. And he told them to come and be bathed in the river and be made new. And they did. And Mary's son, who was working in construction, came from Nazareth. And he went into the river. And when he came up, the sky opened, and a dove came down, and a voice said, This one is my beloved. And John knew what it meant, but no one else did, not even the man himself. He never imagined himself a hero. He never aspired to be a king. He fled into the desert, where he was tempted to give everything up. And there he discovered something important about what he was called to do and about what power had called him. Maybe he remembered that his mother had also been called by this power and that she had not fled. And Mary's son began to talk to people, and he talked to poor fishermen who were being squeezed out by commercial fisheries on the Sea of Galilee. 
And he talked to anonymous crowds full of the spectrum of humankind, transgender persons and men and women and children, and all were hungry, and so he fed them by the thousands. And he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And there was something about him that was believable. And he said, I have come to proclaim good news to the captives, to the poor, and release to the captives. And they believed him too. And he preached from the mount to a crowd full of women and told them no one should be objectified in the mind of another. And from that mount he also said, blessed are the poor and the meek and the merciful and the peacemakers. They are God's children. And they believed him. And he taught, love your enemies. And they wanted to. And he said, leave everything and follow. And they did. And he healed women for whom no hope was left and said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And Mary of Magdala and Joanna and Susanna and many other women provided for Jesus' ministry out of their own resources. And he acknowledged the unique contributions of the women whom he encountered from their domestic labor to their attentive listening to the acts of anointing and even to their last two coins. And he ate meals with sex workers and tax collectors and he said, this is the reign of God. And some people say that he walked on water. And as the people listened and followed, they began to see that a new way of thinking and a new way of being was possible. And they laughed, and they sang, and they felt free, and they had hope. In one Passover, the man whose mother had named him Jesus went to Jerusalem, and he entered the city on a donkey, and huge crowds waved tree branches and shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was then that the leaders knew that Mary's son had to die. And Jesus met with his friends on his last night, and they did what they had always done. They ate together, but it was different. Jesus washed their feet, and he told them to love one another as they had been loved. And he told them that he was going away, but that a spirit would come to them. And Jesus broke bread for them and poured out wine for them and said, keep doing this, and I will be with you when you do. And that night, he was arrested and beaten and tried in a sham trial. And the wife of a governor tried to intercede on his behalf, but the next day, Jesus was killed in the most vile way that you can kill someone, by nailing him to a cross. And Mary stood beneath her son and watched his torture and knew she could not rewrite the story. But Jesus believed he could offer at least a postscript to his mother's pain. And he gave his best friend to his mother as a son and gave his mother to his best friend as chosen family. The last word she heard her son say was, it is finished. And Mary's son, the child of God, gave up his spirit, dying a hero's death. And she was taken into the home of the disciple whom Jesus loved, and she felt the warmth of its shelter and the promise that her son had made over and over again to his disciples, that a new family, marked by love and trust, was possible. And if you pursued the realm of God that Jesus had seen coming, it was possible for you too. 
And when he was dead, they buried him. And the women who watched wept. And the men who had followed him ran away. And on the third day, he was killed. Mary of Magdala, Mary the mother of James and, and Joseph and Salome, and perhaps more women from Galilee, came to ensure he was buried once the Sabbath was over. And they got to the tomb, but the, stole, the stone was rolled back, and the tomb was empty. There was no body. And we're not sure what happened next. People said they saw him. Not a dream, not an illusion. It was really him. He spoke to them and embraced them and ate fish with them. And one of them even insisted on touching the holes where the nails had been. But after a few weeks, he disappeared again. And a group of those who had been with Jesus were together when something just as strange happened. They felt an energy among them, a boldness, a sensitivity to each other, an awareness of human community below the level of difference, beneath the differences of language and culture. The energy made them euphoric, and it changed the course of their lives, and they shared their possessions among each other. And they began to go out and to talk to people, lots of people, lots of different people, not just Jews, but Gentiles and women and slaves, and a transgender person of influence from Africa. And they found themselves in so many unlikely places, in conversations with people they never would have talked to before. And they said the Spirit sent them. But they also had the backing of some leading women in the community, like Damaris and Lydia and others, who never received much credit. And before long, there were small communities of Jesus' followers popping up all over, in Thessalonica and Philippi and Corinth and in Rome. And all of them were different, and they couldn't agree, we can never agree, on exactly what it is that a follower of the way is supposed to think or how we're supposed to act. But they baptized new members in the name of God, Christ, and Spirit anyway. And they broke bread, and they poured the cup together, and they shared their things with each other, and they loved one another with a fierce and tender love. Just as they had been loved, they loved one another. And for many years, the Romans were weary of this alternative kingdom and its crucified but risen king. And the followers of Jesus wondered, will the way ever win? Will peace ever reign? Will love ever defeat the powers and the principalities that assemble against it? One man, sitting in a prison in Rome, dreamed of such a day. And that day is coming, Paul said, when love will win, when there will be no binaries between us and no divisions. And on that day, every tear will be wiped away and mourning and pain will be no more. For God will come and make God's home with us and God will dwell with us and all will be well again. And some imagine this new heaven and new earth as a woman clothed in the sun with a moon under her feet carrying the promise of new life within her. We've always wanted to know when that day will come. The day that we know ourselves to be exalted over the dust from which we are made. And some have said it will never come. <clears throat> and some say it's coming. We just have to wait. And some say, what if it's already here? What do you think? 
It may not be your ending to write, nor your world to save entirely on your own. You may not believe that saving is in your power, or perhaps other people don't believe it in your power to do so. Perhaps you find that whole enterprise suspect, or perhaps you too have known what it means to be someone whom others suspect and disempower. But are you not a disciple of Jesus, a child of God, which is to say a survivor, a giver of life, a sustainer of the living too? So when will God grow inside you and make a new home with and for us? Will we just have to wait, or is it already in some sense here? What do you think about God's story, known in part through this Bible? It is, after all, like God, part of your story too, and you are a part of it.